Leviticus chapter 4. I've got a lot of passages I want to look at with you tonight, so if you'll try to stay up and try to turn to those with me, and you might even want to write a couple of them down as we go through here. Um, but we are talking about, obviously, what is, what is wrong with the Catholic Church, false doctrines. And last week, uh, number one here under this uh, that we talked about last week was that the Roman Catholic Church uh, says that they're the only true church. And we talked a lot about that in the, in the, uh, um, from the Bible, how they, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why they cannot be. Um, but they don't have the right to claim to be the only true church of Jesus Christ, especially when you consider... When they came along and all the church history that passed between that, the, the time that uh, the apostles were on this earth and when they actually had their first pope declared, it was a long time. So they cannot claim apostolic succession or any of those other kind of things, and uh, not to mention all the other things that we talked about. But what we want to talk about tonight is the priesthood. And there's a lot of different, there, there's a lot of things that I, that I need to tell you all at the same time. So I didn't know exactly what direction to go with this. So I think what I'm going to do, uh, first off, is, is give you what the Bible teaches about the priesthood itself, which is obviously where they get this idea from. Then we're going to talk about what the Catholic Church believes about the priesthood and, and their priests, and then kind of come back around to the Bible and show you why it's, why it's wrong. Uh, from, a, from a little bit different perspective in the Word of God. But the Roman Catholic Church has created a special priesthood that mediates between God and people. And honestly, there's one verse in the Bible, we're, we're going to get to it in a little bit, there's, there's one verse that really just completely blows that entire idea out of the water. If you wanted to take just one verse and look at it, it's very, very obvious. Uh, but there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about. So these priests supposedly have power to hear confessions of sins, they, uh, they can absolve people from their sins. They, they can offer sacrifices through mass. They can, they can bestow salvation onto you um, through their sacraments and, and through the, the ministry of the sacraments. They, they prepare men for death through the spiritual rituals and rites and all of that kind of stuff. And all of those things are things that if you just look into the Word of God, they have no right to do. They have no power to do. They have no authority to do these things. So, what does the Bible teach about the priesthood? Well, first of all, number one, the priest was the Old Testament mediator between God and men. Uh, and so that idea is not that crazy uh, if you're looking in the Bible, because you do find that. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the priest was uh, the mediator between God and men. God dwelt at the tabernacle. Later on, he dwelt in the temple. But not just anyone could approach God. Right? And you don't have to turn over there, but Exodus chapter 20 and verse 19. Now, this is talking, Exodus chapter 20, we find what? The, the Ten Commandments, right? And Moses comes down, so Exodus 20, by the time you get to verse 19, all the Ten Commandments have already been given. The people said, they said, the people said unto Moses, we'll talk to you, you talk to us, but let not God speak with us lest we die. They knew better than to try to approach God directly. They didn't have that right. They didn't have that authority to approach God directly. They had to go through the priest, and, and specifically through the high priest. But there was a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies for a reason. Not just anybody could go in there. And it was a very serious thing, right? Uh, they would have bells around the, on the, around the bottom of the, of the robe of the priest, and they would have ropes tied to him. So if those bells stopped moving, they know that he approached with sin or whatever else, and he would be drugged out by his ankles, Right? Uh, and as far as we know, that, that never happened in the Bible, but it was there for a reason. And not just, not just any Israelite could just walk up into the, the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice, right? It was, it was Levitical priesthood and so on. 
Not just anybody could offer sacrifices. Remember when Saul made that mistake? That was one of the last mistakes Saul made before God said, all right, that's it, right? He got impatient. Samuel was supposed to come and make that sacrifice. He got impatient waiting for Samuel, and he decided that he was going to make that sacrifice himself. And God judged him harshly for that, right? So not just anybody, even a king had no right to come and make a, a, a sacrifice. The priest went to God on behalf of the people. He was the one that was supposed to offer sacrifices for their sins and make amends, or what we know as atonement. Leviticus chapter 4, and verse number 20. You should be there in Leviticus chapter 4. And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering. So shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. Now, we find this only in Leviticus and Numbers, but 25 different times in those two books, you see the word priest and atonement in the same verse. 25 times, and then you don't see it anywhere else in the rest of the Bible. Uh, uh, it's, it, it was because that was the Old Testament system. Now, the second thing then about the, the Bible teaching from, uh, about the priesthood is that Jesus Christ, in his priestly role, was the final mediator between God and man. And that's possible because he is both God and man. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the verse that I was talking about that if somebody said something about the priesthood and you wanted to have one verse that you could point to to say there is no such thing as the priesthood, you wanted to have one verse that you could say, hey, this is, this is not right. The priesthood in, in the Roman Catholic Church is not found in the Bible. Well, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 5, and it says very plainly, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How you can continue to be a priest and mediate between God and men and make the same statements that they make in the Catholic Church and have in all of their writings and all of that kind of stuff is beyond me. That verse is about as plain as it can be. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus. How can you say that there can be thousands of them in the priesthood? How can you even say that there's one other one in the Pope? There's already one, and it says very plainly in 1 Timothy chapter 2 who that is, and it's Jesus Christ. So if you want one verse to combat the priesthood, that's, the, that's all you need to turn to. But I will have you turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, because Jesus Christ, in his priestly role, was the final mediator between God and man because he's both God and man, but also because he offered the final sacrifice. There is no more sacrificial system, right? We don't find sacrifices anywhere in the New Testament. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ, everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus Christ. It was a type, it was a sign of Jesus Christ who was to come, right? Jesus came. He became that sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 10. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Well, that kind of settles that too, doesn't it? Jesus Christ was that sacrifice. He was the only sacrifice that was needed. So since our sin is entirely paid for in the New Testament dispensation, then each born-again Christian does not have to go through a priest like they did in the Old Testament. We already have that direct, direct access to God. And, and that's what's known as the priesthood of the believer, which, by the way, 
we're not, Baptists are not the only ones that believe that, but that's one of the Baptist distinctives, right? The priesthood of the believer. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through a man. We don't have to go through anybody else. We have direct access to God. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read that one together in a second, but while you're turning over there, I want to read to you Revelation 1 verse 6. And it hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We are priests, right? That's the priesthood of the believer. I don't need to go through some other person who claims to be a priest. I am a priest. And that doesn't mean that I'm in this, you know, this great position where people can come to me. We're all priests before God. He made us th that. He gave us that position, which means then we can go directly to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, it says this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal what? Priesthood. And a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But again, it's very plain, isn't it? You are a royal priesthood. We have the ability to go directly to God. We don't need to go through anybody else. There's a huge significance in the tearing of the veil when Jesus Christ died on the cross, right? It wasn't just, wow, that was a miracle. The veil rent in twain. By the way, it was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top. And also, you, if, you, if you go back and look at it, which we did when we were going through the, uh, the tabernacle, that veil was thick, really thick. It didn't just happen on accident. It's not like somebody you know, was messing around at the bottom and two people grabbed it and tore it and it tore from the bottom to the top. It was done by God himself. And that was the veil that was separating the holy place from the holy of holies. There's a lot of significance in that. It's, it was tearing that down because no longer do we have to go through a high priest to make the sacrifices for our sin. Jesus Christ was in the middle of making that sacrifice when the temple veil was rent in twain, right? And it's very significant because he was saying, you don't need to go through this anymore. You can come directly to God on our own accord. Not only does the concept of a mediator between God and man disappear with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but nowhere in the New Testament does the church ever refer to its pastors as priests. You don't see that anywhere. Why is that? Because we all are. If you're saved, you are a priest. You have a royal priesthood and you can go directly to God. In other words, there's zero New Testament church foundation for either calling or acting as if the clergy in any church is a priest that mediates between God and people. We don't need that. We are a royal priesthood. We have one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus. So what is the Roman Catholic view of the priesthood then? Let's look at a few of these things, and we're going to read some different quotes, as we often do, from their own writings. But the Roman Catholic view of the priesthood says that you need the priest to make Jesus' sacrifice personally effective. But what they say is that the Catholic priests take the place of Jesus Christ. They call him Lord, Father, and Melchizedek, right? That's the first thing, the first Roman Catholic view of the priesthood. Catholic priests take the place of Christ, being called Lord, Father, and Melchizedek. The Council of Trent, which was a very significant council within the Catholic Church, their decrees have to be accepted by all Roman Catholics under the pain of excommunication, which means if you get... Essentially, it's looked at as a mortal sin, meaning if there is a sin that you can never be forgiven of, you get excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and that means you, couldn't, you cannot go to heaven. The Catholic Church is the only way in 
And if you get excommunicated and put out of the Catholic Church, then you can never get in. So this is a very big deal. And what they came up with at the Council of Trent, for any Catholic to disagree with any of these things, is the equivalent of that mortal sin or excommunication. Here's what they said at the Council of Trent. The priest is the man of God, the minister of God. He that despiseth the priest despiseth God. He that hears him hears God. The priest remits sins as God. And that which he calls his body at the altar is adored as God by himself and the congregation. Wherefore, they are justly called not only angels, but also God. The priestly course of preparation reaches its climax in a colorful and solemn ordination ceremony in which the bishop pronounces the awesome words, Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a strong statement. Basically, you are acting on behalf of God. Now, when I get up to preach, I'm not acting in God's stead. I'm preaching God's message. I am giving you what God already said. I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not in the place of God. Not even close to that. And no one is. But that's what they say. They say that, that you need the priest to make Jesus' sacrifice personally effective. And, and they take the place of Jesus Christ. They take the place of God. They call him Father. They call him Lord. They call him Melchizedek. But here's the second thing that the Roman Catholics view of the priesthood is that they, the Catholic priests mediate between God and men which we've already kind of said that, but let me give you a quote from, uh, from the Eucharist in Catholic life. The priest at the altar is at mass as Jesus was on Calvary. His function is to bring God to men and raise men to God. He consecrates and he sacrifices. As consecrator, he acts in the name of God. As sacrifice, he acts in the name of men. So without a priest, you can't get to God. Without, without a priest, God can't get to you. You have to go through that priest to bring those two sides together. That's about as anti-1 Timothy 2 as you can get, right? But that's what they say. The third thing is that the Catholic priest turn the bread of the Lord's Supper into Jesus Christ and offer him as a sacrifice. Uh, that's the point of Mass. That's the point of what they call Holy Communion, right? You cannot receive God and stay in communion with him without the priest. Because you have to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and the only person that can turn that into the body and blood of Jesus Christ is a priest. Here's what they say. The two greatest powers of the priest are those by which they forgive sins and change bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an idea called transubstantiation, which is the bread and the wine, which they actually drink real wine, the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, and it's because the priest has the power to make that happen. That's their job. That is why they do that communion. And as you're taking the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, you are having, you are, it's bringing you an access in, in holy communion with the Father. But only a priest can do that. They say this, the power to consecrate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ has been transmitted to priests down through the generations. Priest himself can never grasp the sublimity of this power. He calls God back to earth again because through him the incarnation has once again been renewed. He actually holds the creator in his hands. The mass is the renewed presentation of the sacrifice of the cross. Holy mass is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross offered again on the altar. The last supper, the sacrifice of the cross, and holy mass are one and the same sacrifice and Jesus is the only victim. It comes from the Eucharist in Catholic life. To say that Jesus Christ is basically being re-sacrificed every single time they do Mass 
is, is essentially what it is. And, and again, they're saying the priest has this power to bring God back from heaven by making that bread and wine the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And even the priest is never going to understand the significance of the power that he holds in his hand. The Catholic priest also has the power to forgive sins. Uh, the, th the thing is, I mean, and this is, this is stuff, stuff that we also know about the Catholic Church. But, we, but, but think about that. Think about the, the gravity of that statement. A Catholic priest has power to forgive sins? Who are you? You're just a sinner. Who gave you the power to forgive sins? Right? What do you think? I mean, where do you, how, do you, how do you give yourself so much precedence or give yourself so much authority that you can forgive somebody's sins? But that's what they believe about the priesthood. The priest has Christ's power, they say. He can forgive every sin, provided that we confess sincerely and with a contrite heart. A new life, the Holy Spirit. What a great wonder. Man goes to confession, a sinner. If he goes sincerely and trustfully, he returns a new man brought back to life, filled with strength. They are literally, and it says that, the priest has Christ's power. They are literally making themselves Jesus Christ. Nobody else has power to forgive sins other than Jesus Christ. And the Bible is very clear about that. We're going to look at that when we come back around to the Bible. But to say that you have power to forgive sins, that is literally taking the power of God. It's claiming the power of God. And not in the same way that we say that we can have the power of God in our lives. It is literally saying, I am in the place of God able to forgive your sins. In the Roman Catholic Church, you don't confess your sins to God. You don't have that access. You don't have that right. Now, look at all of 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? The Bible is very clear that we don't have to go through a priest. We, we don't go through it. We shouldn't go through a priest. We go directly to God, right? But in the Roman Catholic view, you cannot do that. You have to go through a priest. You have to confess to a priest, and he tells you what God wants you to do to make up for it. Which remember, and we haven't gotten to this point yet about the false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, but one of those false doctrines is that it's not salvation by grace through faith, it's salvation by works, right? What you do and how you live and how you act and the good you do is going to determine whether you make it to heaven or how soon you make it to heaven, right? So, this is what they call the act of penitence. You tell the priest what you did, he determines on a scale how bad it was and then tells you what you need to do to pay for that sin. And sometimes it is monetary. But I remember, I went to Mexico, and I spent a month in Mexico City uh, just out of college. And we went to one of the main Catholic basilicas in Mexico City. And I, could, I can't tell you, it was a huge, huge complex. And one, I mean, the area is, is probably the size of all of our property, maybe bigger. A giant courtyard area that was completely... Uh, it wasn't concrete, but it was like stone pavers, but the entire thing was made out of that. You know what I'm talking about? And sometimes you see driveways that are made out of these little tiny stones, but it's concrete. And that's kind of what that whole area looked like. And here you had people walking on their knees, bloody knees, because they're doing what the priest told them they needed to do to be able to pay for that sin. And just all kinds of stuff, people walking around, whipping themselves in the back. Because that's what they had to do to pay for those, their sins. That's what the priest deemed was necessary for those sins to be forgiven. That's what the Catholic Church says. Now, you have other things that go along with it. Extreme unction, 
which is that you need the priest to grant you final absolution so that you can die in a state of grace. It's, it's also known as last rites. Most people on their deathbed or when they think they're close to their deathbed are begging for a priest to come and read them their last rites because they want to be right with God. They, they don't want to have any sin between them and God. And so if I confess these sins to a priest and he can read me my last rites, then that final absolution, and I'm going to go to heaven with no sin between me and God. That's why they get the priest to come in. I can't tell you how many times as a, as a, uh, as a chaplain, I've been called out to a scene and they say, hey, can you, can you pray over him? And I'm saying, I'm not, a, I'm not a priest. I don't believe that. If you want a priest to come, I'll, I'll call the priest to come, but I'll, I'll pray for you. But, but anything that I do is not going to help him. And most of the time, they don't even understand. Okay, all right, sure, if you want to pray, then that'd be great. You know? They don't even know why they're asking for a priest. They just know that that's what you're supposed to do, right? That's why often in, in battle, you have these priests that just go around and, and pray over these that are dying because they're trying to get those last rites. But that's what they believe the priest has, has the authority to do. And then, of course, purgatory as well. You need a priest to intervene on your behalf uh, even, in, even after death. He says masses. Of course, that's paid for by the family members who are left. And the more masses he says for that person that's in purgatory, which is like a, a holding hell, if you will, it's not, it's not full-blown hell, but it's, it's, uh, it's where you go to get your sins burned off. You can get out of there sooner if you get a priest to pray for you to get out of purgatory. They have that power, or at least that's what they say. So let's look then at the errors of the Catholic Church on priesthood. And, and those are a lot, that, I mean, it, it hopefully is pretty obvious to you. Uh, what's wrong with those statements that, that the Catholic Church believes about the priesthood. But the first one is this. This system perpetuates the Old Testament bondage and uncertainty rather than letting us live in the freedom of the New Testament, right? If you look in Galatians, and I'm not going to take the time to do that tonight, but the, the law was there as a schoolmaster to point us to Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ came. We're not in bondage to those Old Testament laws anymore. There's a reason why we don't have to do all the purification laws and all the, the meat-eating laws and all of those other things. We're not in bondage to that anymore. And, and essentially, what, this, what the Catholics are trying to do is put us back in bondage under the Old Testament system. It's, it purposely cultivates everlasting uncertainty. Nobody can know for sure whether you're going to heaven or not. And that means, I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a brilliant system if you're looking at it from that perspective, right? You need us to get you to heaven, and you never know if you're going there until you take your last breath and you stand before God, right? So don't leave us. Don't leave the Catholic Church. In fact, even after you're gone, you still need us, right? And, I mean, what a brilliant system for staying wealthy. <laughs> and that's a lot of what it comes down to is money, right? You can pay us, and we'll help you, but you need us. And if you leave us, you're going to be excommunicated, and you never have a chance of getting to heaven. What a brilliant system. I mean, you know, we called everything else that did that a cult, right? Same thing. It's no different. The second thing is that this system when it comes to the errors of the Catholic Church on priesthood, calls for the personal holiness of the priest to be ignored. He's effective because of his position no matter how wicked he lives, right? He's a priest, and it doesn't matter what his life is like. He's a priest, and he has an authority of all the things that we said they believe about the priesthood. That leads to very wicked lifestyles on behalf of the priests. Um, the, the detailed private confessions that are demanded by the Catholic Church are degrading, they're unholy, 
And many former Catholic priests have actually documented the, the, really the degradations of the Roman confessional. Priests are instructed to ask questions that are very, very personal. And, you know, there's no women priests. So you have women that are coming and confessing things that should never be mentioned, right? Men that are, are confessing things that should never be mentioned. And, and a lot of that has led to immorality through the ungodly practice of this confessing to a priest. Now, here's a testimony of a, of a former priest named Charles Chinique. He lived from 1809 to 1899. So it's been a while. But he wrote extensively about the Catholic Church after he got saved and came out of the Catholic Church. He became a, uh, I believe, a Lutheran pastor um, after that, which back in the 1800s was not near what it is today. But he wrote this. When the Council of Lateran decided that every adult of either sex should confess all their sins to a priest at least once a year, there were no exceptions made for any special class of sins, not even for those committed against modesty or purity. And when the Council of Trent ratified or renewed the previous decision, no exception was made either of the sins in question. They were expected and ordered to be confessed as all other sins without any exception. It is imperative, absolute, and every good Catholic man or woman must submit to it by confessing all his or her sins at least once a year. Therefore, the young and timid girl, the chaste and modest women must think of shameful deeds and fill their minds with impure ideas in order to confess to an unmarried man whatever they may be guilty of, however repugnant may be to, to, to them such confession, or dangerous to the priest who is bound to hear and even demand it. No one is exempt from the loathsome and often polluting tasks. Both priests and penitent are required and compelled to go through the fiery ordeal of contamination and shame. They are bound on every particular to one, the one to ask, the other to answer under penalty of eternal damnation. I do not exaggerate when I say that for many noble-hearted, well-educated, high-minded women to be forced to unveil their hearts before the eyes of a man, to open to him all the most secret recesses of their souls, all the most sacred mysteries of their single or married life, to allow him to put to them questions which the most depraved woman would never consent to hear from her vilest seducer is often more horrible and intolerable than to be tied on burning coals. More than once I have seen women fainting in the confessional box who told me afterwards that the necessity of speaking to an unmarried man on certain things on which the most common laws of decency ought to have forever sealed their lips had almost killed them. This was written back in the 1800s, and it's no different today. It's the exact same today, but, but th those are things that if you've never been part of the Catholic Church, you don't even think about. But what a, what a wicked thing to, to have to do that. Here's another thing, number three, this system puts Christ into the background. We make much of Jesus Christ, or at least we should be, right? And the Catholic Church and this priesthood system puts Christ in the back burner. You don't need Christ if you have a priest. Why do you need him if you have somebody that can do everything that Jesus Christ does, right? Men can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. It's the one mediator between God and men we talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 2. They don't believe that. Lord Jesus Christ is the only priest after the order of Melchizedek. Remember, we read a little bit earlier that these priests are ordained after the order of Melchizedek. That's what puts them into the priesthood. David Cloud, he's, he's, a, he's a, done a lot of research on all kinds of different religions, but he said this, What strange, unbiblical blasphemy for fallen men to claim to be priests after the high order of Melchizedek. The New Testament plainly teaches that only Jesus Christ is a priest after this order. He is the great and only high priest. The writer of Hebrews dwells at length upon the subject of Melchizedek priesthood, and he only describes one man who is after this order, and that is Jesus Christ. 
The New Testament does say that all true Christians are a part of the priesthood, but never are Christians referred to as part of the priesthood of Melchizedek. It is certain that no Catholic priest fits the qualifications for this priesthood. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to give you some of the qualifications, and we're just going to look at this passage pretty quickly, but some of the qualifications for the priesthood of Melchizedek. And let's see. Let's see if any man could fit into the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. All right? Number one, the first thing is that the priesthood of Melchizedek requires a kingly position. Verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. No Roman Catholic priest is a king, so that eliminates them. That's the first one. Here's the second one. The priesthood of Melchizedek requires an eternal generation. How about verse number three? Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Is there any priest alive that fits into that category? No father, no mother, no beginning, no ending? I don't think so. They can't be after the order of Melchizedek. But here's another one. The priesthood of Melchizedek requires a personal appointment by God. Verse 17, for he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? No Catholic priest has been personally appointed by the Almighty God. They're appointed by men. Here's another one, verse 24, the priesthood of Melchizedek requires an immortal existence. But this man, because he continueth ever, continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession. Does that fit any Catholic priest? No, they haven't continued ever. They're not unchangeable, right? That eliminates them. Here's another one. How about verse 26? The priesthood of Melchizedek requires a sinless life. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. You know any Catholic priest that fits into that category? No, most of them are the exact opposite of that, right? They're getting away with everything vile that they can think of to do. Here's another one. Verse 27, the, the priesthood of Melchizedek requires a perfect once for all sacrifice. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Well, who do we know that did that? Hey, he's the only one, Right? Jesus Christ is the only one that offered himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He's the only one that we know that doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins first and then for the sins of the people. You look in the Old Testament, every priest, every high priest had to do that in the Old Testament. If they were going to offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people, they had to offer up sacrifices for their own sins first, right? And here, there's only one that we're talking about that's never had to do that. That's after the order of Melchizedek. And I can tell you flat out that that's not one single Catholic priest who fits into that category. Here's another one, verse 26, again. I'm sorry, I think it's verse 28. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son, who is consecrated forevermore. That's the seventh thing. The priesthood of Melchizedek requires the absence of all infirmity and weakness. Right? Is there any priest that's ever lived forever? Not that I know of, not that we've ever seen, but we know of one, right? Who is it? Jesus Christ. He's the only one that fits into that category of the priest 
after the order of Melchizedek, right? And, and so in, in, if you look at all of those qualifications, it, it, it's an utter impossibility of anyone holding an office that he was appointed to by a man to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But that's how they're pronounced when they become a priest. You are now a priest after the order of Melchizedek. No, you're not. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. But how do they get around that? Well, they say we are here in place of Jesus Christ on this earth. No, you're not. No, you're not. Here's the fourth thing, and this, is, this goes back to why, what are the errors of the Catholic Church on the priesthood? The third thing we said was that this system puts Christ in the background, but number four, the believer has all blessings in Christ. Biblical pastors don't distribute spiritual blessings. I'd love to bless you, right? I don't have any ability to do that. I can't do anything, right? I mean, I can, I can try all I want to. I can wave anything I call a magic wand I want to. I can't give you any blessings, right? So their work is to proclaim the good news of God's offer of blessing through Christ and point them to Jesus Christ. That's all we can do. I can't make you accept it. I can't bless you. The blessings of salvation have to be received directly from Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? That's not me quoting that. Go back and look in your Bible. Those words are in red. Jesus Christ is the one that said that. Here's the fifth reason. There's no biblical authority for special priesthood today. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read into all these different passages. Some of them we've already covered, but the Bible says that the Old Testament priesthood was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and, and it's passed away. You read Hebrews chapter 5 all the way through chapter 10, and that's very clear, very clear. Today, every true believer is a priest. There is no special priesthood like there was in Old Testament times. Roman priesthood is the creation of men in rebellion to biblical revelation, right? So a lot of mysteries in godliness, like the Bible says, right? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh and all of those things. There are still things that we don't understand, but this is not one of them. He revealed that to us very plainly. The Old Testament system is gone. The New Testament system doesn't look anything like that, keeping the law and having the priesthood and all of that kind of stuff. Here's number six, the errors. Catholic priesthood is an evil attempt to rob Christians of their God-given privileges. And when it comes down to it, that's exactly what it is. We have the privilege as priests to come directly to the throne of God, and they're trying to take that away from us. Christ intended that his church, which consists of all true believers, should enjoy all the rights and privileges that were conferred by him. But Rome withdraws those rights and privileges from the people and invests them in an order of priesthood. Romanism puts the priest between the Christian believer and the knowledge of God as revealed in the scriptures and makes him the sole interpreter of the truth. It puts the priest between the confession of sins and forgiveness of sins. It carries this interposition through to the last hour in which the priest in the sacraments of extreme unction stands between the soul and eternity. And even after death, the release of the soul from purgatory and its entrance into heavenly joy is still dependent on the priest's prayers, which must be paid for by the relatives and friends. That is inserting themselves in between us and God and taking away the privilege that we have of coming directly to the throne of grace. Here's number seven. Confession of sin is to be made to God, not to a priest. Here's another quote. Confession of sins is commanded all through the Bible, but always it is confession to God, never to man. It is a striking fact that although Paul, Peter, and John dealt frequently, frequently with men and women in sin, both in their teaching and in their practice, they never permitted a sinner or a saint to confess to them. Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles. 
and in them he often speaks of the duties and practices of Christians, but never once does he mention auricular confession, a confession in the ear of a priest. Peter, John, and Jude wrote six epistles in which they have much to say about the matter of salvation, but none of them ever mentions auricular confession. And certainly Christ never told anyone to go to a priest for forgiveness. Nowhere do the scriptures tell us that God appointed a special class of men to hear confessions and to forgive sins. And what a great statement. That's found nowhere. So where did that come from? They made it up. They got together in these councils and they made proclamations and people started following them and claimed that it was Christianity. That's not in the Bible anywhere. We don't find that anywhere. Number eight. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23. We're almost done here. I got two more points, including this one. Matthew chapter 23 and verse number nine. Because Jesus forbade his followers to address religious men by the title of father. And if you look in the verse before and the verse after, he gives some other titles not to call people by, but this one is about as plain as it can be in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 9. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. What do they call priests? Father whatever, right? We call this guy pastor this, pastor that. They call him father this. It's about as plain as can be. Call no man your father upon the earth, right? How blatantly the Roman Catholic Church ignores that, that Bible instruction. Don't call anybody your father, right? Now, those who address men with titles like father and lord of, or Melchizedek, names that belong solely to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, honestly, are, are committing nothing short of blasphemy, right? There's only three times that you can call somebody father in, 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 the, in the Bible, three correct usages. Father can refer to God. We have, we have lots of passages that talk about that. Father can be refer, used to be referred to somebody's own parents, right? You can call somebody father. Or somebody who, is your, uh, uh, who uh, was intram- instrumental in somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ, right? A spiritual father. But no, nowhere, and very plainly in Matthew chapter 23, call no man your father upon the earth, right? So very, very plain. Now, turn, turn over to James chapter 5 and we'll be done. Because this is a passage that we need to look at because this is one that they would possibly use as a way to say that we need to confess our sins to a priest. James chapter 5 and verse number 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. Effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. See, look, you're supposed to confess your sins to a priest. See, look, the priest has to pray for you. Well, that's not what this verse is saying at all. Number one, we're to confess our faults, not our sins. The word says faults. And that's where words in the Bible matter. That's why versions of the Bible matter. Because the standard Greek word for sin is hamartia. That's not used here. The word that's used here, James uses the word paraptoma. I don't know Greek, so um, forgive me. But that refers to uh, a side slip, according to Strong's concordance, a side slip, a lapse, a deviation, an error. That's not sin. Uh, when you sin, it's not a lapse. It's not a side slip. It's a sin, and it's against God, right? So we're talking about two different words here. A sin and a fault are two different things. You look in other places, that same word is translated fall or offense or trespass. James is instructing us in, this, in James chapter 5 to confess those faults that were committed against other brethren, right? You say something that you didn't intend to necessarily offend somebody with, but you offended them. 
That's a fault. It's not necessarily a sin. It's a fault. And you need to go confess that fault to somebody, right, to the person that you offended or, or other things that happen that are not necessarily sins, but they're faults that were done against somebody else. He's not asking us to confess our deepest sins against God. Those are confessed to God directly, right? Barnes is a commentator. He wrote this. The confession referred to is for faults which, with reference to one another. That is, where one has injured another. And nothing is said of confessing faults to those whom we have not injured at all. Right? Confess your faults one to another, not your sin. By the way, modern versions like the NIV and like the, uh, the NASV, they say sin. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Because they are taking it, and, and this is a different discussion, uh, a, a long discussion for a different day. Um, but we use and we believe that the textus receptus, the received text, is the only Greek and Hebrew text from which we should base a translation of the Word of God, which is what the King James Version is based on. The Westcott and Hort text is a, uh, a wrong version. We'll just leave it at that. But in the Westcott and Hort text, it uses that Greek word for sin. So, okay. They're justified in that because if you were using that wrong text, the wrong Greek and Hebrew text, and in this case, the wrong Greek text, and it says sins, then you can confess your sins one to another. And that means that the Roman Catholic Church is completely justified in saying that you need to come confess your sins to a priest because that's what the Bible says. But you're using the wrong version of the Bible. That's a whole different discussion for a different day. But it doesn't say sins. The Bible says faults. The second reason is we're to confess our faults one to another, not to a priest. The Bible doesn't say even confess your faults to a priest. It says confess your faults one to another. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find a special priesthood that stands between Christ and the believer. And the third reason why this verse has no bearing on that whatsoever is that we're to pray for one another, not to pronounce God's forgiveness, right? It doesn't say go to God and, and pronounce forgiveness on that person's behalf, Right? Praying for one for another is completely taken out of context when you say that a priest needs to go pray so that you can have your sins confess, uh, forgiven, right? Forgiveness comes from God, not from a man. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 38 and 39 that only God can forgive sins because only God knows the hearts of men. So we see even in the Old Testament times when there was a divinely ordained priesthood between God and men, it was God, not the priest, who, who gave that forgiveness, Right? The priest went to God on behalf of those people, but God was the one who had to accept that sacrifice and forgive the sins. The priest, even in the Old Testament, didn't have authority to forgive sin. That's always been the prerogative of God alone. So a lot of things that we talked about tonight, a lot of things that we covered fairly quickly, but nowhere in the Bible do we find the priesthood. And nowhere in the Bible do we find that a man stands in the place of God on this earth. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that somebody has any power to forgive sins. And in fact, what we find in the Bible is there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Next week when we get together, we're going to talk about the fact that they say that church traditions are on par with the authority of Scripture. And again, that's not correct either. So we'll talk about all that when we get together next week. Let's pray. We'll be done. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for the time we can spend together tonight. I thank you for the, the truth and the, and the clarity of your word. I pray that you'd help us to stand on that and only that. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.